Colossians 3 is where we're turning this morning to a wonderful text, returning to something we studied a little bit last week, focusing on the adoration that we should have toward the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us. Our identity is in him. This, this context, of course, is in uh, speaking about how we can overcome temptation, how we can not be slaves to sin, how we can be righteous in our daily lives. And it's not a matter of finding just the right set of rules and regulations that would somehow govern us and lead us into life. But it is finding that Christ has accomplished it. And not just is accomplishing it, he has accomplished it. It is a done deal. It is signed, sealed, and delivered. Now, that's not to say that we have experienced the full expression, full application of our salvation. We have yet to receive our glorified bodies. We have yet to have that resurrection like our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a sense in which we have been raised with Christ. And because of that reality, then we can live our lives in a way that pleases God. We live not in our own strength, our own power, but in the power that, that Christ supplies through his spirit. Well, reading uh, this passage, beginning at verse 20 of chapter 2 uh, through verse 4, I'll read it for us and we'll look uh, specifically at part of verse 1 again uh, this, uh, this morning. Verse 20 says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Do not handle, nor taste, nor touch, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters to be sure a word of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. We looked at verse 1. Of course, the, the contrast or the, the corresponding ideas, verse 20 says, if you have died with Christ, then there's certain expectations or realities about that. But then in verse 1, it says, if you've been raised up with him, then there are these new uh, expectations or new realities that we have in Christ. And that is to say that we are with Christ. If he has been raised up and he is now seated at the right hand of God, then we have also been raised up we're not seated, seated at the right hand of God in the same sense as Christ, but we are with him in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, and I mentioned before that Ephesians is a very, very parallel book to this book, Colossians. And so many different ideas can be uh, found in both both letters. Uh, Ephesians is a little bit longer and he has a little bit different emphasis, emphasis there in Ephesians where he, he, well, he just does some other things. But in Colossians, he is, he is uh, more succinct, more... Uh, hopeful, more positive, not that he is in Ephesians as well, but he, when he's addressing the false teaching going on in Colossae, he, he's, he speaks of it, not in identifying or calling out what it is by name, but he says, this is the way you ought to be. This is the way you ought to think. This is how you ought to live. This is how you should relate to Christ. This is how you should relate to temptation. This is how you relate to sin. This is how you re should relate to one another. And so Colossians and Ephesians really are so much in parallel. One of the phrases that is common in Ephesians and other of Paul's writings is different here than in Ephesians. There he would talk about in the heavenly places, uh, like even in verse 3 he says, um, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Wow. 
Well, that's, that's good news. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, not the stuff on earth. Like, you know, I, I kid about, well, actually, so many people several years ago would, would kid that their 401k turned into a 201k because the, the investment market just cut in half, and if not, not more. Well, it's not that kind of earthly blessings. Every earthly blessing under the sun, well, we've seen the, the vacuousness, the vanity of those things as we read through Ecclesiastes. I mean, this is empty. And there was a, a poor uh, wise man who delivered the city, and then nobody, nobody remembered that poor wise man. Well, good grief. What kind of honor, what kind of prestige, what kind of satisfaction can we find in this world? Even these commands about do not handle nor taste nor touch, it, it's talking about food. Food is there and it's gone. You eat it and it's gone. So what kind of earthly blessing is that? Well, thankfully, God has given us meaning. He's given us purpose, even in things like eating and drinking. He wants us very simply, to be thankful for it. 1 Timothy 6, uh, uh, or 1 Timothy 4, excuse me, talks about that, that we should uh, receive these gifts, food and drink and even marriage as gifts of God. He wants us to be thankful. He wants us to render uh, gratitude to him because of his wonderful gifts. The things that he has given us on earth are, are just shadows even of what he has promised to us in the heavenly places in Christ. When he says we have been raised up with Christ and we should seek the things above, he's talking about those things in heaven, in the heavenly places, the things that are above. Now, lest we think, well, we're going to look up into the sky and look for the clouds uh, and see what's on the clouds. I see rainbows and, and that, those are good. That's part of God's promise, not to judge the earth with water again. And yet we should look higher. Oh, the stars and the, and the, and the uh, moons and the different planets. Well, farther than that, outside of creation, where God is. God dwells outside of time, outside of space. And those are the kinds of blessings. Those are the kinds of things we, we should be thinking about, seeking, as it says here in verse 1, uh, desiring, uh, having an affection for those things. Now, we still live on earth. We still walk around. We still do our work. We still eat and drink and sleep and all these wonderful things. And yet, we're living as citizens of a heavenly realm. We're, we're ambassadors. It's almost like we are at an outpost of God's wonderful kingdom that is coming, that is here, that is coming, and, and we represent him. And we want to give that sweet aroma of Christ to those. Now, it's a sweet aroma to those who are being saved, those who are uh, walking in Christ. It is an aroma of death, of condemnation to those who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not like, well... They have to remain in their sin, their weakness, their condemnation. No, anybody can repent. Anybody can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar, the meanest, baddest king. That's, that's poor grammar, but you get the idea. Uh, in the Old Testament, he, he came to fear God, the God of heaven. And he says we need to seek those things above where Christ is. He says two things about Christ. We'll look at, at both uh, specifically. He says this is where Christ is. Christ is now a resident of heaven. There's a verse in, in John, John uh, 16 and verse 28, where Jesus himself gives a brief, a very brief summary of his whole ministry model. It summarizes Christmas, it summarizes Easter, it summarizes the ascension some 40 days after his resurrection. And he says in John 16 and verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. And you think that's kind of pedantic, that's kind of redundant, that's kind of a simple way, but it is so profound in that it shows 
Christ came from the Father. He came from God's right hand. He was sent from God above. He is the only begotten God. He is that one who is eternal in the heavens. He is the one that was not uh, did not enter into time for the first time in the, in the sense of, of he didn't exist before. He's the pre-existing son of God. And he says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. This is where he came to live. He was born of the world, born of course, as the Apostles' Creed says, born of the Virgin Mary, and so forth. And he lived a perfect life. He was sacrificed. He died on the cross for our sins. He became man for us. Why is that important? So that he could die for us, so that he could be the sufficient Savior, the propitiation, the satisfying sacrifice for our sins. He says, I have come into the world. It's, a, it's a, something that has been accomplished. He doesn't need to come into the world again. He's accomplished salvation. Okay, he says, I am leaving the world. Now, this is John 16, John 17, John 18. I mean, he's going to go to the cross. This is the night before uh, he is going to be uh, nailed to that cross. And he says, I'm, I'm leaving the world, and I'm returning or going back to the Father. You think, wow, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus could hear that, and he can say that to others who follow after his example. But he is the one who has come from the from heaven, God the Father in heaven, come to the earth, and now at this time he was leaving the earth and going back to the Father. Uh, Luke records the ascension of Christ when Christ is going up from the earth back into heaven. Luke records it twice. He records it in Luke 24, the very end, kind of in a summary fashion, but then he, he presents it more fully in Acts chapter 1 and speaks about this reality. In fact, the angels there are with the apostles as they're watching Jesus being taken from him. It says in verse 9 of Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had spoke these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and the cloud received him out of their sight. Thankfully, the angels were there to interpret, to explain, to help the apostles understand. These apostles were, were gazing intently, saying, is he going to come back? Where is he? Is he, you know... Now, we, we don't appreciate maybe that, that tremendous reality. We see things flying up in the air all the time. Now, they saw birds and those kind of things, but a man, a man that they were just talking with and they touched and they were with for three and a half years, now they see him being taken up and then hit by a cloud and they say, where'd he go? Is he going to come? Oh, this thing about the kingdom, because that was the question they asked, when are you going to restore the kingdom and all this? And they were expecting him to come back like soon. And the angels uh, said, who were two men in white clothing, stood beside and they said, verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Lest there be any question where Jesus is right now, he is with God in heaven, outside of time and space, where he was before he entered this earth. This is where Christ is. He is above. Now, there, there's a certain measure of cosmological significance about this in terms of the cosmos and, and uh, you know, where is heaven and, and where is the edge of, of space? I don't know. It's out there. It's above us. And Christ is beyond that. The, reality, the marvelous reality is that he wants us to be with him in that heaven place, that place that is, is beyond space and time. That's where our thoughts ought to be. Why should they be there? Because that's where our life is. That's where our Lord Jesus Christ is. And all of our hope, all of our the promises that are given to us, as Paul says elsewhere, all of the promises are yes in Christ. If we want to have any assurance of salvation, it is attached to Jesus Christ himself. It's not based on our uh, heritage, our, our uh, you know, genealogical significance. It's not based on our age or marital status or 
uh, number of children we have, size of our bank account, what kind of car we drive, what kind of clothes we wear, where we went to school, nothing like that. That matters for on-earth stuff. But when we're talking, and it matters for eternity because it does, we can lay up treasures on they're in heaven based on how we manage them, how we steward them on, on earth. But our affections, our identity is on Christ himself and where he is, that is heaven. And so we think about those things. We regard ourselves as citizens of that heavenly sphere. And so as we interact with things on earth, we are not taken by them. We appreciate them for what they are. It's food and drink, shelter. You know, if we have these things, we should be content. We should not clamor for more and better things. If God wants to give uh, luxurious items and so forth, he can do it. But we are we ought to be content. Uh, with godliness, there is great gain. Well, that's what people think. But now it's contentment that we ought to strive for. It is being thankful uh, and not necessarily satisfied. Satisfied in a sense, but, but wanting more so that we can give more. Uh, Ephesians 4, 28, I think it is, it talks about the thief. Let him who steals, steal no longer. Well, that's good. That's Yeah, don't steal anymore. But that's not enough. We'll see it to some degree here in, in chapter 3. It's not enough to stop sinning, to stop stealing, to stop even uh, letting unwholesome words come out of mouth. No, on the contrary, on the converse of that, let him who stole steal no longer, but let him labor, working in his hands, and the thing that is good, so that he will be able to have more for himself. No, so that he will be able to share the, the, the answer, the solution for thievery or, or um, stealing stuff is generosity. Instead of hoarding it for myself, it is giving willingly, happily, uh, meeting the needs of others. And so th that's the transformation that Christ makes. This is the heavenly kind of idea. This is what Christ has done in his life. Christ, who was king, he, he didn't have any needs, and yet he came and he became needy for us. He said even on the cross, I thirst and he, he received some liquid in his mouth so that he could then utter that wonderful cry, it is finished. And then he died, gave up his spirit to the Lord, to his Father. This is what we represent. This is different. This is supernatural living. This is super world living. The way that he, he's going to talk about in, in throughout chapter 3 of Colossians, it is way different. The way that Christians ought to live, it's not a matter of food and drink and those kinds of things. How do you relate to one another? You are ambassadors. You are representing a wonderful new heaven, a new reality, a new kingdom, the kingdom that has come on earth and will come in a full sense when Christ himself returns to earth. But we are representing Christ on this crazy, mixed up, sinful, cursed planet different. People ought to be able to see us and say there's something different about him. And it's not just the way he wears his clothes or what he does on Sunday. But he he interacts differently. He, he's a hard worker. Uh, he is respectful to those superiors. He is, you know, whenever he's he's annoyed, maybe, I mean, we read about that. Paul was greatly annoyed by that servant girl and said, spoke to the spirit, get out of her. Uh, it's okay to, to have anger, but how do you do that? How do you use that anger? Anger is an emotion. It is an, a, a power. It's an energy to do something. Unfortunately, we use anger. Ephesians 4 says, in your anger, don't sin. A lot of times we use anger as power to sin and make the problem worse when we have to use that to solve the problem and solve not, not to be attacking, but to, to get to the heart of the issue. That's what Christians do. It's because we represent what is in the heavens, what is sure and, and stable and and significant and unshakable, Hebrews uh, 12 talks about. And we want to have that witness in this world. Yes, we want to witness Christ in our words. We've got to speak the gospel because 
It's by hearing the gospel. How can they believe unless there's a preacher speaking, unless you think, oh, I need a preacher. Well, you can be a preacher. You can speak the gospel. You can proclaim, evangelize, uh, and share the good news of Christ. With that, make sure that your life backs it up. Remember a fellow uh, gave us a vehicle years ago, and he said, watch out, there's a fish on the back. And he was implying <clears throat> that uh, I needed to drive carefully because I'd be tagged as a Christian. I'm cutting and weaving and speeding and doing all these nasty things. He says, watch out because you're, you're tagged as a Christian. Well, okay, you're tagged as a Christian. People know, oh, you're part of that church. Remember a guy saying uh, that certain folks wouldn't come to that church because the most notorious lawyer in town goes to that church. And part of the answer is, well, you know, yes, the church is full of hypocrites. There's room for you, too. What? How dare you? I mean, we all need to be transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be to come not just in um, disingenuously, but truly, sincerely, contritely before the Lord. We put our affections where Christ is. Why is it? Why is Christ there? Why is not Christ here on earth still doing his healing work? Why is not he here personally doing his preaching work? I mean, certainly more people would believe if Christ were here personally speaking the gospel, healing people. Do you, do you read the Gospels much? Do you know how many people were there at the cross? Even his own disciples had fled. Peter, John was there. John was standing with Mary, Jesus' mother, and other Mary that was there and, and, and some other folks. But when the time came to, to uh, express devotion, adoration, dying, uh, sacrifice to the Lord, nobody was there. How many people believed, truly believed, how many people were truly saved during Jesus' earthly ministry? When Jesus could say, I am going to the Father, and greater works than these will you do, because I'm going to the Father, I will send my Spirit. Do you realize how significant it is at that first preaching event in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when Peter's there preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, the place just a few weeks before where Jesus was on the cross, and people were saying, crucify him, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. Peter preached the gospel, and 3,000 people were saved baptized and saved and added to the church. And then the, I mean, one of the repeating refrains in Acts is the word of God kept spreading powerfully and many more were added to the faith and the church became this and the wonderful things. That didn't happen during Jesus' earthly ministry. That was something he was preparing. The, the, he was accompanying, doing the work he had to do himself that nobody else could do and that is die for sinners. But he has committed to us, the church, to speak that gospel, to be agents of his blessing to people. And so we are here on earth. Christ is there in heaven. He has no more work to do on earth at this time. He has committed everything to the church to accomplish for him. There's a time again when the only thing, or only the things that he can do because of who he is and what place he has, he's going to come and finish the work. He's going to come and rule and reign in the, in the place of his father, David. And he alone is able to do that. We don't have a, a surrogate king. We don't have a uh, somebody who can fill in for Jesus. No, we need Jesus on earth, and he is coming. In the meanwhile, we have our affection on Christ. We set our, our hope, our, our dream, our ambition on him, but we still live on this earth. And the way that we live is by remembering Christ is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. You think, seated at the right hand of God. What does this have to do? How does that help me in my daily life? Oh, so many ways. So many ways. First of all, just breaking it apart, he says that Christ is seated at the right hand of, of God. To be 
to, to sit down has various connotations, various uses in Scripture, and it speaks about uh, several different aspects that can be referred to. One, I just mentioned in passing because it doesn't apply in this case, is when somebody is sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It's an attitude or a posture of repentance, of contrition. Well, Christ isn't sitting and seating in that, sit, seated in that way. There's no contrition, no need for him to repent. Not at all. But that we could see that elsewhere in Scripture. One of the things that Jesus did when he sat was he would sit to teach. The posture of a rabbi, posture of a teacher, would be to sit down and others would be gathered around him. In fact, so many times you think, well, wouldn't it be easier to, for people to hear you if you stood up? Well, yes, but seated, being seated shows the, the, the posture of a teacher, one who's in authority. When Jesus talked about the Pharisees, they sit in the seat of Moses and they pronounce all these things upon you. Uh, but I say differently to you, and you ought to do this and this other thing, and, and trust me and uh, be humble and, and contrite. So teaching, the posture of sitting is one uh, aspect of, of teaching. We see how seatedness or sitting down has a, a flavor or a taste of indicating a finished project or uh, something that is done. It doesn't say it specifically this way in Genesis chapter 2, but it, it carries that idea. God created the heavens and the earth. In six days, he created all this stuff. Uh, um, this is Genesis 2 and verse 1. Heavens and earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. God did not have to sit down in that regard, but it shows how there was time for work, and now there's a time for rest. The work is done, and now we can enjoy the fruit of that labor. Several different times. Well, we have one, two, three, four different times in Hebrews that speaks about this idea of sitting down and Christ sitting down at the right hand of God, but it has the emphasis on the finished work. For example, even verse 3 of chapter 1, Christ having accomplished cleansing, he did it. It's, it's finished. He accomplished cleansing for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 8 and verse 1 talks about how Christ is that better high priest. We have the high priest who, um, a, a better high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the holy places and the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. You, you see the contrast between the, the priests that would be working in the, in the tabernacle in the temple and they're doing all this other stuff there, there was not a bench there was not a seat in that that earthly tabernacle but now christ having accomplished salvation he finished the work he offered himself not a a, a blood sacrifice not his own but his own self he was priest and sacrifice presenting himself and then he could accomplish that salvation and sit down hebrews 10 speaks about a very similar thing and that is first time i mentioned it here but that's the first um quotation in this sense in Hebrews of, there's an allusion in different things, but Psalm 110 verse 1, Christ sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time uh, until his enemies are put at his, as a footstool for his feet, quoting again Psalm 110. And so we see that wonderful promise, that expectation. Christ has accomplished the salvation. He sacrificed himself. He offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Don't need to add to it. Don't need to have booster, you know, sacrifices for sins, if you get the current and contemporary analogy. Christ accomplished this thing. It's done. It is applied and, and wonderfully uh, done for us. And then, of course, in Hebrews chapter 12, 
that he uh, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He accomplished this for us. Another contrast you saw between Christ, the high priest, and Christ, the or, excuse me, the the uh, earthly um, uh, Levitical high priest, because Jesus wasn't a Levite. We'll go into that another time. But you see the contrast between Christ seated at the right hand of God and Satan, described in First Peter five as roaming, prowling around. What's he doing? Why is not he seated? Isn't he he a victor? Didn't he have victory over Christ at the cross? Didn't he have, you know, get all of his will done? No. Satan is is angry. You read in uh, Revelation 12 how he is so animated against Israel, wants to destroy them, and he's just going out because he can never win. He's never really on the high ground to accomplish this. So he's always busy doing this, which means we need to be on guard. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. When we stand firm, he says, oh, I'm going to go for an easier target. He is a weakling. He's a coward. He doesn't want to do all these. He wasn't fight the, the, the hard fight. We need to fight the, 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 the fight, the good fight. But Satan is looking for an easy target. Don't be the easy target. He is prowling around. He has demons all over the place doing his nasty bidding to lead Christians into sin. Don't be like that. Anyway, to, sit, to be seated indicates uh, teaching, authoritative teaching, a finished work. But here... In this context, and what's celebrated so much in Psalm 110, is this enthronement, this being made king, being honored in this this, uh, place of honor at the right hand that we'll look at in just a moment. But Psalm 110 and verse 1 is the, if not the most, at least one of the most, quoted to or alluded to Old Testament texts repeated in the New Testament. We see it multiple times in the Gospels. We see it when... Uh, Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. He says, they asked him, are you the Christ? He says, well, yes, and you will see uh, the uh, Son of Man uh, in heaven and and seated at the right hand of majesty on high and all these wonderful things. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that uh, thing. Acts, Peter, at that first preaching, mentions that. Quotes Psalm 110, 1 Corinthians 15, a great resurrection chapter, quotes this. Ephesians, Hebrews, as I mentioned, one, two, three, four, five times. In Hebrews, this psalm is, is quoted or alluded to. First Peter 3 also uh, speaks about it. What's the verse? Yahweh says to my Lord. This is a psalm of David. Remember when David, when Jesus was asked all those questions on the probably the Monday or Tuesday of Passion Week, all these questions about this kind of thing. And he says, let me ask you a question. Whose son, whose son is this Christ? David calls him Lord. How can, be, how can Christ be his son? Because of the, you don't call your your father Lord. You would call, uh, or you would call your father Lord. You wouldn't call your son. So a descendant of of David would not be called Lord. So whose son is he? Uh, because David or Jesus quotes this Psalm. Yahweh says to my Lord. David says Yahweh says to my uh, David's Lord. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. This is the promise that God the Father made to God the Son. Sit here until. This is accomplished until now you've done this sanctifying work. Yes, but there is a time all your enemies need to be subdued. And as 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be subdued is death. Death itself be swallowed up in victory and Christ will be made a Lord of all these things. He already is in that he has been resurrected. But there is a time coming when all death will be swallowed up. People still die. Animals still die. But there's a time when death will be no more. And that was when Christ will be crowned 
as king. All these wonderful texts, you, you could look all through that. that Christ has, sat, has uh, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is at the throne of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Now, again, we're in the context of sanctification. What does this have to do with, with us being more, made more holy, made more righteous in our lives? Do you remember how Paul said a couple different times in, in chapter 2 of Colossians, don't let anyone take you captive. Don't let anyone judge you because of this. You, you don't do this or you do do this. And, and, and he says don't, they're, they're not in authority. They're not in charge. Christ is the one. Romans 8.34 says, uh, if Christ died for us, who is the one who brings a charge against God's elect? How You, you can't do that. Christ is enthroned. He is the one who, who taught. He has accomplished salvation. It's the finished work. He is fully enthroned. So don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone persuade you against Christ, being captive of Christ. This is, this is inherently practical in our daily lives. If Christ is the authoritative teacher, the uh, sanctifying Savior, if he is the enthroned king, then we ought not worry about what other people say. It's contrary to Jesus' words. That's not to say that we ought not help one another, spur one another on. If we see uh, a sinful action, attitude, word, thought in our in our brother's life, we ought to go to that person, Matthew 18, 15 says, and, and rebuke or confront that brother and call him back into line with Christ. But if somebody's telling you, you need to do this, and it's not in the book, or if it's in the book, it's, it's not presented in a good light, like, well, don't eat that and don't touch that and don't taste that, well, we have an explicit command not to regard those commands, not to regard those regulations. If we want to grow in our practical righteousness, we give attention to Christ. We say, he accomplished my salvation. I am not subject to those, those temptations. I don't need, to, I don't have to. I'm not forced to abide by those temptations anymore. I am in Christ. We saw those th- these three aspects of what seated has to do, but there's one final aspect, and that is judgment. When Christ uh, comes, he will come and sit on that throne of judgment, and he will exercise judgment. You know, back in the Old Testament, it speaks about Solomon, who made the, and just imagine Solomon and all his glory and the temple right there, and, and just down the hill from the temple, this beautiful gold emblazoned temple, huge thing. Just down the hill is this other beautiful, huge structure, and it's a multi-building structure because there's this building and that building and this house of the forest of, of Lebanon. And, and just, wow. Well, Solomon built a hall uh, of the throne where he was to judge, the hall of judgment, and it was paneled with cedar from floor to floor. Just beautiful structure. You come into there for, for Solomon to exercise or to mete out judgment against those who come in. Tremendous example. Uh, the king... Um, would, was, would, just, would sit down for that judgment time. Proverbs talks about that. If the king judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. There's that connection between justice and righteousness, judging the earth. The, in the tent of David, there will be a judge will sit on that throne, and it will be a time for justice and righteousness to prevail, which is good news, because right now, uh, unfortunately, sadly, and in un improperly, you go to the court and you don't necessarily expect justice and righteousness. Maybe you expect the, the well, just, just not the best interests of all people to be uh, celebrated or honored in, in our court system. And yet when Christ comes, there will be justice. There will be righteousness. Christ himself talks about that time when he will judge. Remember that time in, in Luke 19, Jesus told a parable about a man who went away to another country to receive a kingdom and certain Folks of that 
country did not want him, so they sent a delegation after them saying, we don't want this man to be king. But before he left, he gave minas, gave a certain amount of money to some servants. He said, manage this, do business with this until I come. Well, cutting the story short, when Christ comes, he judged those servants. How'd you do? What kind of return do you make on my investment, my money? And they gave different accounts. But then, at the end of that story, that king, that newfound king, did not forget those who rejected him as king. Uh, Jesus says in uh, Luke 19 and verse 27, these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Whoa! I thought Jesus was like merciful and kind and pitied. Not when you're disobedient or rebellious, you don't want him as king. The only expectation you have is judgment. To be seated at the right hand of God has all these different ideas that there is a judgment coming. But again, there's that assurance that Christians have there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will stand before God and give an account. First Corinthians 5 uh, says, 5 and verse 9 and 10, each one will be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not for can you come into heaven or not? Are you part of the, the kingdom of God or not? But the rewards idea. We're in Christ, uh, but we are saved as though through fire, delivered as, as, as though by fire. He, Revelation 20 speaks about that great white throne judgment as well. It says that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's a place of honor, prestige, authority, preference. We saw earlier in chapter 1 of the Colossians that Christ is over all. He is the, the creator of all things. He is the one who uh, all authorities in heaven and earth bow down to him. And so he has that position of of um, authority, of um, preeminence, of superiority. He is over all these wonderful things, all the uh, angelic beings as well as human authority. It is the place of exaltation. It is a place of honor in that regard. And in that Christ is, there's nobody like him, nobody else worthy of praise. You read in Revelation 5, who is worthy to come and open the scroll? Nobody, nobody was found. Remember, John began to cry and weep. What is this? Nobody is worthy to take up the seal or to take up the scroll, rather, until the lion from the tribe of Judah, the, the Lamb of God, is able to come up. And he is worthy. Worthy is him, is, is Christ, to take this, uh, this seal. He is supreme in power and authority. The right hand of God, the power, place of, of, of strength, the place, if we, could, if we had time, we'd look at the different places where God's right hand accomplishes salvation. God's right hand does valley. God's right hand is exalted. Uh, save me with your right hand. The psalmist says, God's right hand is that place, and Christ is right there. It's interesting, if you were to trace that idea of right-handedness, not that left-handedness is bad, but, but how the, the power of the right hand is expressed both from God's perspective at his right hand, but also the psalmist could say, the Lord is at my right hand. And you think, how does, how does that work? Because the right hand, I mean, you keep on going down the line. Well, if I'm at his right hand, then how can I be at his, at, how can he be at my right hand? Unless we're, how do you do that? The idea is that there is that identity, that union, that, that intimacy that we have with God such that we can say this kind of thing, that Christ is before us. He is around us. We are with him. This, this, idea of, of Christ being seated at the right hand of God is called the session of Christ. It's talked about the, the, the seating or the, the, um, the experience of him being established uh, at God's right hand. But you know, it says here, we have been raised up with him, Ephesians 2, 6 through 
well, 6 talks about that we have been raised up with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So with him. What does that help us in our practical salvation, practical uh, daily life? In that we also are seated with him. We are with him. And so the, the things that would normally overwhelm us, overrule us, uh, the things that would uh, typically derail us into uh, sin and unrighteousness and, and godlessness don't have that same power. We are in Christ. We are secure in him. We have an identity with him. We, uh, just look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, and, and see this in context, how God loved us. He gave mercy to us. Uh, and we have this new capacity, this new empowerment to live a life that pleases him and honors him. Jesus says, the last word he says to the church in, in Laodicea, he says, He who overcomes, I'll grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Isn't that fun? I don't know if you ever were a kid and you got to sit down in your daddy's lap while he's driving the car, you know, and you feel like you're driving the car even though his hand is on the steering wheel at the very bottom. You feel like, oh, you're going over this and you're doing that. And it's so fun. He says, we get to sit with him on his throne. I will, he says, uh, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That's intimacy. That is just come right on in. But he who overcomes, how do we overcome? By faith, by trusting him, clinging to him. As it says, keep seeking the things above. Or next verse, set your minds on the things above. How do we do that? Meditating, filling our lives with the word of God, ordering our lives according to his word. That's how we have this victory, trusting Jesus wholly in that regard. This is powerful stuff. This is not just, oh, that's a theological study. That's doctrine. I don't need that. That is life. This word of God is powerful for us on a daily level. And we'll see how powerful, how practical it is as he says, uh, well, don't lie to one another. You're members of one another. Don't be greedy. That's idolatry. Uh, Live at peace. Uh, Love one another from the heart. Uh, Pursue unity, peace, uh, uh, joy, love. This is the practical stuff, but it comes out of all this theological base that we need to give our attention to. Christ is that one who is our Savior. He is our deliverer. Our life is hidden right with him. Let's live that way on a daily on a daily basis. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the wonderful realities of your word and how our lives are different because of what Christ has done. And we have an assurance. This is a, a salvation that has been made complete. And we don't need to, to uh, worry about, well, I don't know if this is going to take. I don't know if my salvation is secure. It's in Christ. He is the authoritative teacher. He is the one who is uh, finished the work of salvation. And he is enthroned. He is king over all. There's nobody who can bring a charge against God's elect. And he is the one to judge. Please help us to honor him. Help us to sanctify him as Lord over our individual lives. Please help us to grow in respect to our salvation. Please save and sanctify. Please help us to honor Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.